I hope that everyone in this assembly believes that this book is given to us to teach us how to think. Right. I believe that there is a need for us to be established in the principle of authority. This will be a more theoretical consideration of authority from Scripture than I've given you in the past. In the past, I've preached on the authority of the husband and his rule over the wife practically, with specific practical instruction from Scripture. And I've done the same with parents over their children. I've done the same with masters over their servants in the workplace. I've done the same with the civil power. I've done the same with the ministerial authority of Christ's ministers. I want to deal with the theory of authority as Scripture lays it out. I'm not going to get very far this evening, but I hope it'll be profitable and cause for joy. The teaching of this book, and I'm not going to turn to the verses in this for the sake of time, the teaching of this book is our life. Amen. <laughs> Moses told the people of Israel that we are to take heed to this word and to teach it to our children. We're to write it on our walls, on our fence posts, have it everywhere. Because it is by this book that it is our life. And before the heathens, and before the nations of the world, we will be seen and known as a wise and understanding people for the wisdom contained in this book and how we ought to live. That's right. And if we teach <laughs> the principles of authority, as I'm going to begin laying them out this evening, there is value for us great value for us. Authority is something that is denied and minimized today and ridiculed today and mocked at today. But it's something we need to exalt and glorify as high as God does. There is need for this. I hope you'll trust me. I hope you'll give your total dedication of your mind to what we have to cover this evening. When I say authority, you know our English word authority means the power or the right to enforce obedience. If you've got authority over someone, you've got the power or the right to enforce their obedience. <coughs> it's moral or legal supremacy over another. It's the right to command. It's the right to give an ultimate decision in some matter. That's authority. If you've got authority, you can make a decision for someone or someones that you may be in authority over. Now, the Bible uses another word right along with authority that we tend to not use as much today, and that's the word power. In the Bible, power and authority are synonyms. Right. Let every soul be subject unto the higher powers. We would maybe say, let every soul be subject unto the authorities. Well, power in Scripture is used the same way. It's to, When you have power over someone, it's the possession of control or command or dominion or influence over others. That's to have power over them. It means that you, they're in your sway, in your command, in your control. When we look in the Bible, we're going to see references to authority and to power. For this study, authority is the ordinance of God whereby certain offices were instituted among men for the control of the human race. 
wherein the men in these offices are authorized by God to use the power and means given to them to rule and enforce the obedience of those under their jurisdiction. Let me try to put it more simply. God has made offices, God has put men in those offices, and God expects the men in those offices to exercise command and control in directing that aspect of our lives. God has ordained authority to control and direct our lives. And that is fundamental to understanding how this world is to exist and function. You know, we often make a joke about sitting down and talking to someone and solving the world's problems. You can solve the world's problems with this book. Amen. I think I've mentioned that very recently. The wise man knew that. And the wise man said, you learn this book and it's going to cause you grief. Because every time you read the newspaper, you're going to re realize how simple it would be to solve the world's problems. And you're not going to be able to do it. Because the majority of the people out there are ignorant of this book. But it, it wouldn't be that difficult. I mean, if we practice what the book would say, this world could be Karl Marx's utopia. It would look like Karl Marx intended to, but it would be a utopia. Right. It wouldn't be from every man according to his ability and to every man according to his need. It would be from every man according to his ability and to that man according to his ability, which is the way it ought to be. It's, a, it's rather different from Karl Marx's philosophy. But let's move to the source of authority, and that's where I'm going to spend my time this evening. Where did authority come from? And you think, well, that ought to be easy. Just say, God, let's move on. Well, I want to explain it a little more fully than that. There's, a re there's reasons for it, and I hope you can see that. Authority, or that is the right to command and control and force the obedience of others, is from God. It's not an idea men thought of. It's from God. The right to command, to control, to influence, to direct, to make ultimate decisions for people is given by God to certain positions of authority. It is, first of all, and preeminently, the ordinance of God. And when I say ordinance, I simply mean something God ordained. A law that God ordained to govern this world. That is that God has created positions of authority. The first point I want to make is how is God the source of authority? And the first answer is God is the source of authority by selecting the offices themselves. God is first of all the source of authority by picking offices that would govern the lives of men. And he's picked how many? He's picked five. He has picked five offices. All others derive their authority from those five. <coughs> there are only five. There is, first of all, the relationship that God created between Adam and Eve, husband and wife. The husband has an office over the wife. Then Cain and Abel came along. Then there was the office of parents, but preeminently the father, because the husband's over the wife, over the children. The third would be a pastor or a priest that God would have ordained for the control of the spiritual or religious aspect of their lives. Then there's a master for the economic or financial aspect of their lives. And then there's a king or a president or whatever you might call your leader. There might be a queen. 
for the political sphere of our lives. And those five spheres or domains of authority are the only five. You pick anyone else and I'll, find, I'll show you from scripture and from reasoning that it's derived from one of those five. You know, Peter's very wisely put it in 1 Peter chapter 2, we're to submit to every ordinance of men, the Lord's sake, as unto the, to the king, as the one that's supreme, or unto governors, as those sent by him. So see, governors are derived power, delegated power, from the king. God established authority in this world, first of all, by selecting offices. Have you ever considered, there are five billion people on this planet right now. Five billion. You can't think about the number. You couldn't count the number. You wouldn't know how to arrange the number if I gave you that many blocks. It's too big of a number. Five billion. It's a, it's a huge number. You'd be wheelbarrowing blocks around for the rest of your days. It's such a big number. It's, it's beyond what we typically, you know, we grasp ten or thirty. You know, billion, it, it's a phenomenal number. But have you ever thought about the fact, we have five billion, five billion human beings on this planet, they came into this world absolutely incapable of any conscious thought or action. And they make it, don't they? It's a harsh environment, too. I mean, we just don't lay around and have the sun feed us like a plant. We have to get out and do something. It's a harsh environment. I mean, there's diseases, and there's threats, and there's physical dangers, and there's work that needs to be done. But if, have you ever noticed that it, how well things happen? These five billion helpless little infants that came into this world are somehow instructed on how to do certain things so that there ought to be, in most nations, progress from one generation to the next. Isn't that right? And I said in most nations. I said in most nations. You go, to, you go to one of our thriving cities, like New York City or Chicago, where you have the headquarters for a number of major U.S. firms and international firms, and you, you're told there's 10 billion people living in this metropolis. And you stand downtown and you see 80 stories high with one good office building containing the headquarters for a number of major firms producing everything from automobiles to rubber gloves that women wash their dishes with. And you know they all get to work on time. And they're going down the streets at high rates of speed. Uh, Brother Jonathan Harder and I were talking this week about 60 miles an hour on a two-lane road, the other vehicle's doing 60 miles an hour, and there's 18 inches between you and them. It's amazing how, why we don't have accidents more often, isn't it? Why? Authority. Authority. I'm just building up to authority. Authority! Authority! How do you get 10 billion people to live together in cramped quarters 80 stories high? But by authority. How do you get headquarters located there so far from their production plants, and yet those plants that are in production are churning out the goods that we all use from some men who are sitting there in their plush offices. Authority. It governs our world. And the advanced nations in this world are the nations that have knowingly or ignorantly allowed authority to exist and support authority in agreement with Scripture. Right. Now there's a big difference between New York City and Zimbabwe. 
And there's a reason for it. The Zimbabweans, or whatever you call them, and I'll leave that to your imagination, have never followed the Lord. The first sphere of authority, husband and wife, is broken down. The first one is broken down. And where you have a breakdown of authority, you do not have a functioning society. Now, I'm getting ahead of myself here. This is a point I don't want to make now. It's the value of authority. The value of authority is incredible. It's ever allowed to work the way God intended it and forced to work the way God intended it. It's the breakdown of authority that we call third world countries. You say, well, don't the Chinese have a great respect for their parental elders? Yes. But how many of them are allowed to be masters? You know one great difference? Adam Smith knew it. He once wrote a book entitled A Strict and Careful Inquiry into the Source and Causes of the Wealth of Nations. That's the title of the book as you know it, The Wealth of Nations. Say, in a free country, men who are recognized for having abilities, where the Bible's honored, will be allowed to become masters. And there'll be a division of labor, and I don't mean the division between a candlestick maker and a baker. I mean the division of labor between masters and servants. Right. Where men that God has endowed with ability will rise to the top and be able to direct servants, and that is progress. Right. We took a nation that was inhabited by savages but 300 years ago and turned it into the place that it is today by practicing, by God's mercy, principles of authority taught in this book. Amen. God ordained them. I want you to think about five billion people while you're driving down the street. Teach your children, teach yourself, take heed to your own heart first. How you can get so many people on the streets and there are so few automobile accidents. You know, they talk about there being so many. There's very few, very few automobile accidents. How many of you have been in an automobile accident where someone died? Don't raise your hands because everyone else will feel bad. But how many of you have been in an automobile accident where somebody died? It's amazing. And we're flying around at speed. I mean, you meet another car at 60 miles an hour, it's, it's a pretty severe collision. 18 inches, 24 inches, 36 inches, 8 inches. You know, at 120 miles an hour difference, it's amazing. You know, Jonathan and I were talking about all the angels that it took to keep that working properly. <laughs> I believe that, he believes that. We were rejoicing in the fact that there's angels out there to do it. How many times have you heard about steering linkage breaking to where a car, you lost control of a car at 60 miles an hour? Do you know how big your steering linkage is? It's not this big around, out of tungsten steel or anything like that. It's very small. How many times the steering linkage just break or your steering column break and the car is out of control? It's amazing. It's a little off track, but it's amazing anyway. The nations that have allowed the free exercise of authority and encouraged authority and enforced authority are nations that God has blessed. Now God told Israel, you practice this book. And it will be your wisdom before the nations. Everyone's going to look at you and say, what a wise and understanding people. You know, the world looks, the United States of America, that they have in the past, and said, what a wise and understanding people. 
And there were reasons for that, and they're contained here. And I'm establishing the first of that. God chose offices of authority. There is no alternative way for the human race to improve itself. Right. If you make marriage a partnership, you start the breakdown of authority, and it will destroy the progress this world has seen. Right. We have got to defend and exalt and glorify authority as God has in his word. There are five offices. The office and position of husband, parent, pastor, master, and king. The five spheres or domains of authority. Marriage, family, business, spirit, religion, and political spheres. <laughs> These were selected by God. Listen, brethren, here is the difference between us and everybody outside that wall. We did not start as an amoeba. We did not start as an amoeba swimming around in some little warm puddle of goo someplace. We decided to grow legs and become a, grow a tail and become a tadpole, then a frog, and then an ape, or whatever, and turn to man, and everything has evolved so that marriage families, religions, nations, and businesses are the product of evolution so that if we're to improve the human race, they need to evolve further. It is all the difference in the world in philosophy. All the difference. They are absolutes. They are not up for question. They are not up for discussion. They are not up for debate. And you can't modify them. They're absolutely, infinitely perfect. And God ordained them, chose them, established them, and settled them. It is all the difference in the world between this room and that room out there. Right. That room out there does not believe God is the foundation of all truth and authority in this universe. And therefore, it's all subject to question. It's subject to debate. It's subject to modification. It's not. God's ordained it. Amen. I cannot emphasize it enough. Once you, If you go down the path of evolution, you'll end up with no foundation. Right. Everything ought to keep evolving. You don't have a foundation in God ordained it the way it is. <clears throat> Listen, there wasn't once a hunchback tribe of men living in a cave, squatting on their heels with a little piece of leather between their legs, around a fire, eating a rabbit that they killed by beating him with sticks, who looked over at a group of women cowering in a corner that had their own little pieces of leather skin tied around their waist, and one grunted to another, uh, uh. <laughs> <laughs> Instead of picking out whoever we want tonight, <clears throat> what about monogamy? Let's give it a shot. <clears throat> I'm, I'm not, listen, I want you to think. You know what? That's what they believe. Right. That's what our learned doctors think. <clears throat> that was the origin of how society works today. It doesn't matter if you were doing this, because that's that man's great-grandfather. Marriage. Instead of just reaching into the pile and grabbing one, fellow caveman, let's try marriage for a while. That is not how marriage originated. That, you think, you're, you're entertaining us. No, I am not. This is a fundamental difference between us in here and them out there. Right. They do not believe that. It's a minority that believes that God's ordained things and they're absolutely above question, reproach, and they're relevant for the 20th century. Right? God ordained it. God created a man. 
God saw the man was lonely. God created a man, a woman. God put the woman under the man before there was sin in the world. And God, first off, showed the authority of the marital relationship. God established it. God ordained it. That's why I call it the ordinance of authority. It is not the idea of authority. It is not the option of authority. It is not one way to have a marriage. It is the only way to have a marriage, and anything else isn't a marriage. It's vain. It's folly. It's a fraud compared to what God's ordained. We did not start as an amoeba in a puddle of goo, nor did we come up with the idea of marriage in these other spheres of authority by idiots sitting around, spinning in a fire, watching the sparks for entertainment, coming up with the idea. God ordained it in right. infinite wisdom. Listen, God created men. He knew how they would relate together. He knew what their temptations would be, their troubles, their difficulties, their weaknesses, the environment they faced, what they had, what they would need to accomplish to have a prosperous life. And God <coughs> ordained five spheres of authority to control them in the proper pursuit of those things. And if those five things are honored and exalted and practiced, what the human race could achieve on this planet is unbelievable. What we see as Americans is quite unbelievable to most other generations because this book's been given free course until recently in our nation. These offices are not subject to debate. These offices are not ideas of men. God ordained them. God created a woman for Adam. He did not create a man and a woman for each other. He created a woman for Adam. Right. And he put the woman under Adam. And he told him to rule over her. And he told her to be his helper. And their first authority relationship was established by God. And that was before sin entered the world. God brings children into this world absolutely incapable of conscious thought. They are the most helpless little things you've ever seen in your life. While little, little uh, infant animals are capable of more than they are. And how long does it take for a young colt to be able to stagger around? Half an hour. You know, it takes half a year. It takes a year. It takes two years with some. Before, before children, before they're able to stagger around, they, and they look about as wobbly as a cold at a half an hour. They come into the world that way, but guess what God gave them? The second sphere of authority, that's parents, to tell them, this is a potty. Hear the tinkling water? And you make a sound just like it? And all the other things that we have to Listen, you don't know how to do it. You don't know how to do it. If you think, why didn't God create adults? Why didn't God just create adults? A husband and a wife could come together in marriage. They'd grow a lump on their back. You know, an off would pop another adult. Listen, God could have done it anyway. You laugh. God could have done it anyway. He chose to bring helpless, mindless infants into this world and give parents the privilege, but yea, the responsibility of filling those minds with right and proper things. And that's the second authority relationship. Why did he choose to do it that way? He chose to do it that way to establish the second sphere of authority. Right. He could have done it any number of ways. And I'm not trying to be funny. Think about that. Why did God bring them into the world so helpless? There's a whole lot of wisdom that 
there's a whole lot of wisdom in that. It requires out of a man to be an effective father from the extremes of the greatest tenderness and patience when a, a newborn child is in this world and they can't help themselves and they don't know what it means to stop crying when they're brand new babies. It requires the utmost in patience and tenderness and gentleness from a man and then that child grows into a teenager which requires the greatest combination of wisdom and power and authority and physical <coughs> brutality and I, I, I have, I'll put it in quotation marks for those that are offended physical brutality to keep them in line what a test what a test why did you do what God chose to do it that way God chose to do it that way God appointed, appointed priests I don't care if it was Melchizedek the king of Salem who was a priest the most high God which means he was in charge of worship at Salem. That's right. I don't care if it was Levi or the priests that came from Levi. They were God, they were once God ordained to be in authority over religious worship of the Old Testament. And God's ordained apostles, prophets, pastors, and teachers, and the evangelists for the authority of the New Testament. God's confirmed the natural separation of masters and servants right. by defending masters and telling servants they ought to serve them in such and such ways, which we've taught before. God has appointed and defended autocratic political rulers. God has never taught, nor has he implied democracy or a representative form of government anywhere in Scripture. God has always taught and defended and confirmed an autocratic form of government. That means absolute power resides in one group. Right. That absolute power being limited only by the word of God and his counselors which makes for a whole very efficient form of government. You say, well, what if you get a bad one? I don't, I don't like the question. Right. We'll get to the question, and I'll try to like it by the time we get there long enough to be able to answer it. I don't like the question. What if we get a bad one? You know what? God never talks about it. Right. God never talks about it. God talks and gives us illustrations of men obeying God rather than men. But those are obvious, obvious, obvious contradictions between a king's rule and God's rule. The minute you say, but what if we get a bad one as a king? I hope when you go home tonight, your children come to you and say, well, what if I got stuck with a bad set of parents like you? God made that choice, didn't he? You ever thought about that? Why did God pick the set of parents that you came into this world with children of? <clears throat> that is the providence of God. And if there's one thing that's going to come out of this study, it is this. The providence of God is our salvation. Amen. The providence of God is our, the wisdom of God is our salvation. The Bible says it is improper for a child to ever say to his parents what it's not brought for. They're to be honored. I don't care if you don't like them. I don't care if they've got half the IQ you do. You're to honor them. You don't ask, what if I get a bad one? Well, I've got a bad one. I don't like them. Look what they brought for. That's not what we're to be. That's not what we're to be worrying about. We're to be worrying about exalting those positions of authority right. rather than trying to undermine them with stupid questions. God said kings are the best form of government. And if you don't have a king, have a judge. You know, someone will say, well, Israel wasn't ruled by kings until they demanded a king. Well, they were ruled by judges. You want to look and see if you can find the difference? Right. 
I mean, there wasn't much difference between Moses, the autocratic ruler, and King David, the autocratic ruler. I mean, they both were autocratic rulers. And you say, well, didn't have Moses have 70 that helped him? I said authority was the right and the power to make ultimate decisions. Every time those 70 faced a hard issue, what were they supposed to do? Bring it to Moses, and he makes that decision for them. Right. The authority and the power that are in the offices I've just mentioned are given and delegated by God. The proper functioning of those offices only works where the men that are in those offices take that power and use it. You know, Solomon said, I've seen folly in the earth. I've seen servants riding on horses, and that's what we've got today. When you've got employers that allow labor unions to exist, you've got servants riding on horses. Right. You've got servants riding on horses, trying to tell management of the company what they ought to do. I don't care, and God doesn't care. From the servant standpoint, if an employer doesn't give you a lunch break, no vacation time during the year, and cuts your wages by a dollar an hour from one month to the next, God doesn't care. From the servant's standpoint, God has a word for masters, but it's not for servants to bring that word to masters. God will bring that word to masters. That's right. The authority and the power of husbands, parents, <coughs> pastors, masters, and kings was delegated by God. The proper functioning of those offices to the prosperity of the human race must depend on the use of the power in those offices. And that requires two things. That requires that those under that office submit willingly and completely and cheerfully to the proper functioning of that office. And it requires that the man in the office use his power and enforce that obedience and submission. Wisely, of course. That's a given. But it requires two things. And that's why scripture becomes so important. It teaches those in this congregation who are under authority to submit to authority, to honor authority, to see its value, and to submit as fully as they can. And it tells those who are in positions of authority to take their power and use it because God's given it to them, and they're not being oppressive, tyrannical dictators by doing so, which the entire world wants to tell anyone, whoever shows any authority. I'm a dictatorial pastor. I'm a dictatorial pastor. If you run a business, or you supervise men, and you make decisions about hiring and firing them, short of taking a year to get somebody weeded out of your staff, you'll be accused of being a dictator. You tell your wife what to do, more than once a week, you'll be accused of being a dictatorial husband. You discipline your children with a rod, and you're, you'll be accused of parent brutality. Child abuse. But, those under authority need to submit to it, and those in authority need to take the power that God's given them. Regardless of the man in the office, the authority of the office comes from God. God doesn't care if you think he's ugly. So you were born to an ugly dad. So you're married to an ugly man. So you're married to a stupid man. So your pastor isn't as bright as you are. You think that, well, if I had control of that church, I could do at least 50% better than the man that's our pastor. God couldn't care less about your ignorant opinions. It is the office, and I'm not defending myself, I'm defending the office. It's the office that God wants honored and magnified regardless of the man that's in it, regardless of what you think of the man, 
God has given power and authority, and he ought to be exalted because of it. The man you work for, you may know that if you had his position, you could run the department better than he does. You may know that. So what? Guess who's got the power and authority? He does. Guess where he got it from? God. Not from you. He got it from God because God is doing that office. The first thing God does in being the source of authority is he sets up the offices. The idea that little helpless infants would come into this world was God's idea that there would be parental authority. The idea that God would make two sexes, not 13, not five, not none, not one, I guess I should say. None and one would be the same in that case. God made two. God put one under the other. God made that choice. God established the offices of created man, established the office of husband. God created parents for helpless children. God established the office of parents. God established religious public worship and put it under the control of priests and pastors, taking in the two testaments. God created business enterprises or allows business enterprises and defends the authority on the part of masters to run down. God established political differences between nations and established kings, presidents, queens, czars, Caesars, and others to rule those nations. God established the office. The second thing we want to look at. God then providentially prepares men for those offices. God simply doesn't create the office and then steps back like the deist would believe, and whoever fills the office, fills the office. God in his providence always has a purpose for the man in the office. Right. You say, why am I working for a man that's only half as smart as I am? If you ask the question, I know the answer. <laughs> because you don't have enough patience and you haven't learned submitting to authority yet. Right. I've talked to men who've asked me and wondered why. Why did God give me a son that's not as smart as I am? I, you ask the question, I know the answer. Why did God give me a husband that's not as smart as I am? You ask the question, I know the answer. It's going to be one of your trials to learn proper submission for the rest of your life. Right. Those things happen all these days. Those things happen all the time. And if we could ever learn that lesson well, it would save us from a whole lot of grief. Right. God chose for that dumber person to have more power than we God prepares men. How does God prepare men to be husbands? It's rather exciting. It's called a mood and body altering chemical substance. Testosterone. God makes that difference. You know, it was pitiful in elementary school. I remember in gym back in elementary school days, I was always the fastest boy in school. But you know what? Until about the fourth grade, the fastest girl in the same grade could always beat me. Tore me up. <laughs> Ever seen that happen? Because they develop a little faster in certain ways. But you know, things do change, don't they? They thought that uh, spangled woman that ran, I just forgot her name, uh, Florence Joyner that ran in the 1988 Olympics. I mean, she was spectacular, but put her up against the men who didn't even make the U.S. Olympic team. 
and it would look like some, somebody had tied her down to the track. There is a difference, and God makes that difference by a mood and, and body-altering chemical called testosterone, whereby God prepares men in his providence. They both come out looking the same, helpless. At about 10 years of age, one looks more helpless than the other, and that's usually the boys. And then something happens, doesn't it? It's a glorious scene. We've got so many young boys in here. I hope that you all watch them and watch them go through the change. I could embarrass somebody a great deal right now, but I'll try not to because I wouldn't want to put Brandon on the spot. <laughs> you know, the other night we had a prayer meeting and I made Brandon come out and stand right in the middle of everyone. That boy's 14. He's going to turn 14 in the next couple of months. And God makes changes. And they're exciting to watch. If you understand Scripture, if you understand, you know, the way that humans are going to relate to each other and what happens, and we've got a whole lot more that's going to happen, too. It, I was beside myself Wednesday night. I had a ball just, just looking at him and realizing the changes that he's going through and then looking at my own sons and hoping that the same thing happens to them someday. And we believe it will, because God providentially does it. God prepares men to rule over women and children by giving them physical superiority, intellectual superiority, and temperamental superiority. The Bible says that women are the weaker vessel. Human experience tells us that that's true. Now, if you have a nation where when you look around you say it's not as true as I would like to think that it should be, or it's not as true as the Bible leads us to believe that it is. Do you know what you're witnessing? God's judgment on a nation. Right. God's judgment on a nation. When you have women that are intellectually superior to men, that's a judgment of God because God's taken away the man's brains. When you have women that are temperamentally superior to men, that is, they've got greater spirit, their emotions rule them less. They've got more conviction and character. God's taken away the mighty men. And that's a pitiful state. That's the pitiful state of many cases in our country. But that doesn't change the general rule. Amen. The general rule is God fits men to do the job if they want to do the job. Right. God prepares them for it. Some will say, well, I know of a couple with a woman smarter than her husband. Well, I can tell you two things. One, God's judged her husband. He, he caught the residual effects of the judgment of God in this nation. Or two, they're an exception. And exceptions, instead of nullifying rules, exceptions establish rules for the very fact that they're called exceptions. Because they're exceptions, that means the general rule is the opposite. <coughs> Boys can become fathers and husbands, and rule women and teenagers by changes that God makes in them. God will physically equip, and mentally equip, and temperamentally equip sufficiently to do the job. I don't care what temperament you are, you have enough temperament to handle a teenager. Right. If you want to. Another aspect of God's providential preparation for men for ruling 
and taking positions of authority. Now let's turn to a few examples in the Bible. Genesis chapter 41. Genesis chapter 41. The first two spheres of authority, being a husband and being a father, God prepares men. Now they can be prepared even better by proper instruction. They can be prepared even better by proper diligence on their part. I mean, just because you're male doesn't mean at the age of 20 you're going to be a good husband and father. Instruction adds to that. The parents of that boy add to that in their instruction. The pastor adds to that the instruction he gives. Diligence on his part can make him better. Right. However, God does prepare the man to do the job. In Genesis chapter 41, we have Joseph giving the interpretation of Pharaoh's dream to Pharaoh and telling Pharaoh that seven good years are coming, but immediately after that, seven bad years are coming, and you need somebody in charge of collecting excess food during the good seven years to be able to survive the bad seven years. And Pharaoh looks once around his room in about two seconds, and he says in verse 39, For as much as God hath showed thee all of this, there is none so discreet and wise as thou art. Thou shalt be over my house, and according unto thy word shall all my people be ruled. Only in the throne will I be greater than thou. Now God has chosen that kings would rule over nations. God prepared Joseph by giving him, you say, well, he gave it to him supernaturally. Fine. Fine. I don't care if God gave it to him supernaturally or naturally. God gave him wisdom and discretion so that he could rule that nation. And what a job he did. He collected food for seven years, but for seven years there was absolutely no production. Think of There's a little foreign boy that became Norman Schwarzkopf's logistics officer. You want to talk about a mental exercise? Try to be a logistics officer for moving 200,000 men 300 miles so that nobody could see them. For that strike we made around the Iraqi forces in Saudi Arabia, logistically. There were trucks passing at the rate of 18 per minute. Now, that doesn't make sense. I've read it. At a rate of somewhere, a phenomenal, was 10, 18, 8 trucks a minute, 24 hours a day, to get the supplies out there because he, he prepared a forward supply base in the Iraqi desert to support 200,000 troops. Now that's 550,000 gallons of fuel a day. You know, things like that, spare parts and so forth, the logistics officer to get all of that up behind armies. How many armies in the history of the world have been defeated because there wasn't a logistics officer? The greatest logistics in the history of the world have been the U.S. armed forces. I mean, well, I don't care if it's Napoleon, gets into Russia, starves to death, freezes to death. I don't care if it's the Germans get into Russia, starve to death, freeze to death, no supplies, no fuel. It's support! But a little boy came along and he had wisdom to be able to do that. And I want to tell you something. Joseph had some degree of wisdom. It'll take seven years of prosperity and not let everybody overindulge themselves, but set enough aside to provide for seven years when there was no production. That would take some planning. And Joseph had the wisdom to do it. God prepared him for it, and God gave him the wisdom to do that. Look at 1 Samuel 18. 1 Samuel 18. 
See, I just don't want to say God ordains offices and move on. I want to say God prepares men. God prepares men and takes these offices. How many of you read about that forward supply base? 50 miles into Iraq? Two months supply? 48 hours? Unbelievable. Unbelievable. 1 Samuel 18, verse 5, David went out whithersoever Saul sent him. He's a young man here and behaved wisely. And Saul set him over the men of war. He was accepted in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. Let me read that again. Here's David. There's already a king. His name is Saul. David's a young man. David went out whithersoever Saul sent him and behaved himself wisely. And Saul set him over the men of war. And he was accepted in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. God prepared David to be the next king of Israel by giving him wisdom. So that when he went in and out before Saul, Saul said, I better have him over my men of war. When he went out before the people of Israel, the people of Israel wanted David. They liked David. They willingly were, would submit to David and even Saul's servants. Even Saul's servants accepted David in their sight because God prepared David for that office of king. Right. It's not just that David got stuck in and said, oh, no, now what do I do? Is there a book on this job? Does someone have a handbook on how to be king of Israel? I need help. I better get me all the wise men of Israel here and put them in the room next door and run a microphone into my throne so whenever I have a question, I can whisper it into my microphone they can give me an answer. I mean, there wasn't anything like that. God prepared this young man. He was young here. He was young, fit for the job because God providentially prepared him for the office. God just didn't set up offices. God prepares men for offices. Did God prepare Solomon for his? Solomon said... I don't think I'm prepared one night in a dream when God is talking to him. I'm a child. Remember what he said? I'm a child. I don't know how to go in and out before this so great a people. I need wisdom and understanding so that I can be wise and discerning king. God said, you've asked a good thing and you've got it. And listen, I can turn you to passages for the next 15 minutes how all the kings of the earth sought to Solomon for his wisdom. It wasn't... Turn to 1 Kings 3. No... That's cheating. I'll get it. I'll get it in just a minute. I'll get it in just a minute. God gave him wisdom right out of the blocks to be a wise and an understanding king. Did God give the same to his son? We'll get to that too. Look at Daniel chapter 1. Daniel chapter 1. Did Jonathan's armor bearer understand authority? Isn't that an example? Jonathan gets a little bored sitting at camp. He says to his armor bearer, let's go take on a garrison of listings. The armor bearer says, whatsoever's in your heart, let's go. That is submission and service to his master. Daniel chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. And the king spake unto Ashpenaz, the master of the eunuchs, that he should bring certain of the children of Israel, and of the king's seed, and of the princes. Nebuchadnezzar, when he overhauled 
overthrew Judah, told his master of eunuchs, bring me the best they've got. Verse 4, children in whom was no blemish, but well favored, and skillful in all wisdom, and cunning in knowledge, and understanding science, and such as had ability in them to stand in the king's palace, and whom they might teach the learning and the tongue of the Chaldeans. God had prepared certain men with skill and learning and wisdom. Nebuchadnezzar found them. Daniel happened to be one of them. Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah were three others. And they became leading figures in the Babylonian Empire because God prepared them by giving them the wisdom to get to the top in that empire. God promoted them by blessing them with no blemishes, well-favored, and skillful in all wisdom, and so forth, as we just read. God prepares men for the offices over men. Children need to understand, God has prepared my father in certain ways to be my guide. I should trust my father. My father has lived 20 to 50 years longer than I have. He has experienced many more things than I have. I'm still subject to emotions. I'm still subject to ignorance. I haven't been out there on my own yet. I ought to listen to my father. Because God's prepared that father. If you were serving under Daniel, you should have said, I ought to be willing to serve Daniel with a cheerful heart, with complete obedience, because God has favored this man with wisdom. Right. You say, well, sometimes God doesn't do that. Quit worrying about the sometimes. Even if God doesn't do it sometimes, the office still stands. Amen. But for the most part, God providentially puts men in the office that deserve to be there. You say, well, I've worked for some pretty bad bosses in my life. Maybe you deserve a bad boss at that point in your life. Right. Or maybe 80% of the other employees deserve that bad boss. Don't complain about the man. Right. God put the man there. I don't believe there's ever been a man in any position of authority that God didn't want there at the time. Because as soon as God didn't want him there any longer, guess what? The Bible tells us God sets down kings and God sets up kings. And then the answer said he's able to set up over men the basis of men. I can, oh, there's so many other examples of how God gives superior wisdom and understanding to prepare men to be in positions of authority. But we'll move on. God gives men physical superiority. You know, back in Genesis chapter 10, the first kingdom we read about is the kingdom of Nimrod. Why was Nimrod the first king? He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Why? God gave him some physical prowess in hunting that he became the first king, and his kingdom began at Babel. You can read about it in Genesis chapter 10. Look at Judges chapter 13. Can anybody guess where we might be going in Judges chapter 13? Does God ever give physical superiority to a man to be the leader of other men? Judges 13. I read in verse 1 of Judges 13, The children of Israel did evil again in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord delivered them into the hands of the Philistines forty years. The Philistines are ruling over Israel, but God had himself a man for an authoritative position. It says he judged Israel. How did he get the job? Did he get it because he was brilliant? Did he get it for his character and his ability to resist women? How did he get the job? How did God, enable, how did God providentially prepare him for the job? He made him look like Popeye when he pops his spinach. I mean... God blessed the man Samson. 
We read in verses 2 through 5 about the instruction that the angel gave to Samson's mothers on what she was to do and not to do with him because he was going to be a Nazarite and a God from the womb. And he shall begin, the last part of verse 5, he shall begin to deliver Israel out of the hand of the Philistines. And we come down to verse 24. Verse 24. And the woman bare a son, and called his name Samson. And the child grew, and the Lord blessed him. And we are not talking about intelligence here. When the Lord blessed him, the Lord blessed him with physical superiority. Because the, verse 25 tells us that the Spirit of the Lord began to move him at times. And when the Spirit of the Lord moved him, he didn't write poetry. <laughs> when the Spirit of the Lord moved him, he picked up city gates and carried them to the top of a hill and waved to the inhabitants of the city the next morning. He'd, he'd, get, up, he'd get upset and go out and catch 300 foxes. Now, have you ever tried to do that with a trap? Now, so he just went out and caught 300 foxes and took them two by two and put a firebrand between their tails and burned up all the corn of the Philistines. That's, my man. That's the spirit of God moving a man that God gave physical superiority to to lead Israel. Right. Who's the first king of Israel? Saul. Did God endow him with great courage? No. Not previous to being coming king and God putting a new heart in him, which we'll get to in a minute. But what physical assets did Saul have? He was about eight feet tall. From his shoulders up, he was taller than anyone else in Israel. That would be a rather command, imposing, commanding first king, wouldn't it? The only problem was when they came to his coronation service, the Bible tells us, and I quote, he was hidden in the stuff. He wouldn't show up. He had no courage. I mean, this eight-foot guy was over there stuck down between a couple garbage cans and someplace. Hidden the stuff! So the Bible says, stuff. I didn't make up the word. Hidden the stuff. But he was tall. From the head and shoulders up, he was a good man. God prepared him physically for the job. One of David's great men that ruled in his army was named Asahel, his nephew. And the Bible tells us something about his physical ability. Does anyone in here know the physical ability Asahel had that made him superior to rise up to the ranks of David's chosen men? Could run like a deer. Could run like a deer, very light his foot. Could run like a deer. And back then, you didn't depend on the speed of your M60 or your M1A Abrams. You depend on the speed of your feet to avoid an enemy or to catch an enemy. Foot speed was important. God tells us, God sticks that into because God prepared him for that office by giving him physical superiority. God prepares men to be husbands and fathers by changing, by changing them chemicals so that they mature and develop and grow mentally, physically, and temperamentally. God prepares men to be leaders of other men by giving them wisdom. We've given some examples. God prepares other men by giving them physical superiority. God gives other men a new heart. Let's read about Saul, 1 Samuel chapter 10. 1 Samuel chapter 10. Do you know what kind of leader Saul was before God did something to him? He was a man who kept his father's donkeys. You say, well, so was David. But not long after God got a hold of him. And Saul didn't keep donkeys for very long after God got a hold of him either. Right. 1 Samuel chapter 10, verse 6. Saul, Samuel tells Saul, The Spirit of the Lord will come upon thee, 
and thou shalt prophesy with them, and thou shalt be turned into another man. God is going to overhaul you for the office. I don't believe regeneration is within 100 miles of this passage. It doesn't have anything to do with regeneration because God took away that new heart and Saul went right back to being the bum that he once was. Right. As a man. And he gave that spirit, he gave that new heart to David. So that David became the new accepted wise leader over Israel. Verse 9. And it was so that when he had turned his back to go from Samuel, God gave him another heart. And all those signs came to pass that day. God gave him a heart of courage. God gave him a heart of leadership. God gave him a heart to be able to lead his people Israel. And he had that as long as he obeyed. Because the first time he faced the Philistines, remember he took that yoke of oxen, hacked them up into pieces, and mailed them throughout the coast of Israel? I mean, that was pretty courageous. And he went to battle, and he fought the Philistines. But then he lost it, because he did not obey regarding the Amalekites. And God gave it to a better man. Look at chapter 16. 1 Samuel 16. Verse 13. Samuel here is anointing David to be the second king of Israel. Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brethren. And the Spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. So Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. But the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and an evil spirit from the Lord troubled him. Total change right here. Saul is afraid. I mean, Saul wouldn't love to face Goliath. Saul chased David around like a dog. He was afraid. He was no longer the uh, wise and understanding and courageous leader David was. God enables men. God prepares men for their offices, sometimes by giving them a heart for it because they need it. David said in several places, Thou hast taught my fingers, to, my hands to fight, my fingers to war, my hands to fight. David said, God taught him to do that. That was God giving him the ability to become a leader. God prepares men by subjecting their people under them. I'm, I'm running out of time this evening, so I'm going to start chopping my examples. But, you know, there was once a man named Moses. Moses didn't have too much problem with respect. I mean, there have been a few problems, but God had come to his aid and made it rather clear that Moses was the man you ought to obey. Now, can you imagine being Joshua? Moses says, I'm going to die. I want you to take over these people. For 40 years, Joshua has watched stiff-necked, rebellious, subversive, seditious group of people this world's ever seen. You're going to be in charge. Now, can you imagine what that man was feeling? Did God take care of it? I could turn you to several passages where God said, Get him out in front of everyone and put your hands on him, and I'll give him some of your spirit, and the people will obey him. And they did. And God simply magnified Joshua before them so that he easily replaced Moses. Look at Second Chronicles chapter 1. 2 Chronicles chapter 1. Can you imagine being Solomon? David's king. David died. David says, son, I'm dying. You've got to take over this nation. Why, well, the nation had just thrown David out of his palace. You remember? You're in charge now, son. Go for it. Here's how what God does. God will help a man by subduing his people under him. 
Verse 1 of chapter 1, And Solomon, the son of David, was strengthened in his kingdom. Well, how did that happen? And the Lord his God was with him and magnified him exceedingly. And I can turn you to other passages that elaborate on that, where God brought the people under Solomon so that they wanted to follow Solomon. God will prepare a people like that. God providentially dealing in the men that are put in these offices that he established. Now look at what, how David says it in Psalm 144. I believe it's Psalm 144. Psalm 144 and verse 2. Well, there's the text I just referred to. Verse 1, David says, Blessed be the Lord my strength, which teaches my hands to war and my fingers to fight. David may have been better at poetry and playing the harp than he was at tearing manes off of lions before God got a hold of him. Because this text tells me that there was a change made in David, and God made the change, and David thanked God for it. But he says in verse 2, My goodness, and my fortress, my high tower, and my deliverer, my shield, and he in whom I trust, who subdueth my people under me. God subdued Israel under David. God did it. God providentially helping David become the proper ruler over Israel. God prepares men by giving them gifts. Look at Exodus 35. Exodus 35. Some men rise to become masters in places of employment because God gave them gifts. They're superiors. It's nothing to resent, regret, envy, or otherwise. God gave them gifts. And they ought, their gifts ought to be used. And God makes a difference that way. And public gifts ought to be submitted to because you can look at them and see them. Exodus 35 is such a good example. Verse 30. You, you know, I've been over this before. God, Moses had to make a tabernacle. Now, Moses couldn't talk. Remember, he had a hair lip. He tried to tell God about it out there in the wilderness when he was at Mount Sinai the first time. He didn't want to go back and talk to Pharaoh. He didn't speak. He wasn't eloquent. And we have no evidence that Moses could have sewn a stitch and couldn't have put a button on. We have no evidence of that. However, God had prepared man. All the gold, all the brass, all the silver, all the bells, trinkets, altars, candlesticks, showbread, everything that that tabernacle required, God had a man for it because God had prepared man for position of authority. And that was to be over everyone that was to work on the tabernacle, and it wasn't Moses. <clears throat> Moses came down with the blueprint, and here's the man that put it into practice. Put it, it actually did it. Verse 30, Moses said unto the children of Israel, See, S-E-E comma, See, look around, look. There is an obvious appointment by God to this position of authority. See, the Lord hath called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah. And he hath filled him with the Spirit of God in wisdom, in understanding, and in knowledge, and in all manner of workmanship, and to devise curious works, to work in gold and in silver and in brass, and the cutting of stones, to set them in carving of wood, to make any manner of cunning work. And he hath put in his heart that he may teach both he and Aholiab, the son of Ahissamach of the tribe of Dan. Dan, excuse me. Then hath he filled with wisdom of heart to work all manner of work and so forth. See, God chose the man Bezalel. And I want you to notice Moses said he's chosen him by name. 
That's just saying, listen, this is so real, so obvious, and so clear. I mean, Bezalel, by name, is God's man. There isn't any doubt about this. Bezalel is the man. You know, and I, I mean no shame at all any, whatsoever to any woman in this congregation that I'm about to overlook. But if you want some embroidery done or you want some sewing done, see, God has chosen one person in this congregation to do it. Hasn't he? Or haven't you looked around enough? Mm-hmm. And that's Patty Watkins. Does that bother you? It's a gift. God made a difference. See? God makes differences. It's one we all know. We all recognize and we all use. God prepares men by giving them gifts. Look at 1 Kings 11. 1 Kings 11. Solomon was a wise man. Solomon liked to sit around and read and gaze at trees and flowers and write about them and talk about them and do all things that had to do with wisdom. He said he gave his heart to wisdom. That meant he didn't have time to go out and supervise the building of his own houses in the house of the Lord. He put somebody else in charge. But guess what? God had prepared a man to be in charge of all the builders that took care of Saul, Solomon's building program. And we read about it in 1 Kings 11.28. You know, when you read that text over there in Proverbs 22 and verse 29 where it says, Seest thou a man diligent in his work? He shall stand before kings. He shall not stand before mean men. Here's the fulfillment of it. 1 Kings 11.28, the man Jeroboam was a mighty man of valor, and Solomon, seeing the young man that he was industrious, he made him ruler over all the charge of the house of Joseph. God endowed Jeroboam with industry as a young man, so he was a mighty man. God gave him might. God strengthened him. Solomon saw there's a gift from God. I'm putting him in charge. And he was in charge. There's a gift from God. The New Testament tells us that when Jesus Christ ascended up on high, he gave gifts to men. Apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. God enables men for the offices he's created. And the offices ought to be evident enough that you can simply say, See, God has chosen. If it is such a question and nobody can see it, God hasn't chosen. Because God will make it obvious enough for people to see it. God prepares men for ruling by providentially confirming their rule. In Exodus 14, and you don't need to turn there, Moses has just taken over the people of Israel. 600,000 footmen, wives, children, and 3 million. He is standing on the other side of the Red Sea. There's bodies floating up on the Red Sea, and there are Egyptians. You know what the Bible says? And the people feared the Lord, and they feared his servant Moses. God confirmed Moses with that spectacular event they see to confirm Moses as their leader. How about Solomon? This is the one I, I bypassed a little while ago. Look at 1 Kings chapter 3. 1 Kings chapter 3. How did God confirm Solomon that he was a, a wise king that they ought to submit to? A harlot rolled over one night and killed her baby, didn't she? That was the confirmation that Solomon needed to become the king. Look at verse 28. This is after he gives his judgment to determine the true mother of this child. And all Israel heard of the judgment which the king had judged, and they feared the king. For they saw the wisdom of God was in him.
to do judgment. God confirmed Solomon in his office. God does all these things providentially to prepare man and to confirm man in the offices that he's created. God sometimes prepare, prepares men by giving them superior circumstances. How about Mordecai, who's sitting at the uh, king's gate? What does he happen to over here? Two chamberlains who want to kill King Ahasuerus. He tells Esther. Esther tells the king. The king finds it to be true. He hangs the two chamberlains. The events recorded the chronicles of the Persian government. And guess what that means later in life for Mordecai when it's rediscovered by Ahasuerus? Promotion! To be right up there at the top of the Persian Empire. Circumstances. The Bible says, and Solomon said it time and chance happened to them all. The race is not always to the swift, nor the battle to the strong. But time and chance happens to them all. And sometimes God will bring circumstances like that to bless a man to get into an opportunity. Some of you are in business opportunities because of the grace of God. He brought you to the right place at the right time. You have an opportunity, and you ought to thank God for it. And the reason you're a master of a successful business is because God enabled you and prepared you with superior circumstances and maybe others of these qualifications that I'm listing. You know, in some of these cases, God specifically appointed a man. Like David, he was just a keeper of sheep. God said, he's my man. <coughs> Nobody would have guessed it. He's my man. Then he prepared him. Others simply rose up through the ranks like cream rises in unhomogenized milk. And they rise up to the ranks by the ability that God gives. See, that man's got ability. That's why he went up to the ranks. God does it both ways. You know, we have some examples right now before our nation that I'm thankful to God for. And I'd like to close with them in light of this as something that we can encourage our children with. God prepares men for offices. You know, there, there is a dearth of mighty men in our nation. We've had a couple in the last three years that I hope you'll take recognition of. There's a number that could be mentioned, but I believe it's our responsibility to pray for them and to take recognition of them. We first of all had the supreme servant, and that was Oliver North. Oliver North was not in a position of authority. Yes, he had secretaries and so forth under him, but he showed himself to be the supreme servant. We have thanked God for that example, and I hope we'll remember that example. When confronted in hour after hour after hour of severe questioning by senators and attorneys, and if you watch some of that, there are videos now on it, you ought to go and see some of that. See how well that man handled himself. He once made some statement about if the president told me to do it, and that's what I'm supposed to do. And they said, well, would you, do, would you do anything the president told you to do? And you know, he said, and only his way, believe me, I can't talk like he can. He said, if my commander-in-chief told me to stand on my head in the corner, I would stand on my head in the corner. Before I did so, I would thank him for the privilege of serving him. God be praised. Amen. Now, see, there's a whole lot of people that think we need checks and balances and they shouldn't have obeyed the president. Well, that's because we have a corrupt form of government. Right. That man had to make a choice. By their national and on that poll issue doesn't even need to be discussed. He was the eminent, preeminent servant. 
he defended those that were over him. Right. He didn't rat on them. He was loyal to them. You say, well, didn't he owe some loyalty to the Congress? Not in matters like that. Right. He is a servant. Now, we've got another man that is the current hero in this country to many people, and I believe he ought to be. There's several, and I don't want to slight anyone. We've prayed for President Bush tonight, and I want to tell you, President Bush showed more manhood, a higher level of blood, testosterone, than any president we've seen in many, many years. Right. I don't care what you think about the war. I don't care about our motive. He did it right. Right. He did it right. I mean, can you imagine a president of the United States in 1991 saying you've got till noon to get out or we're going to kick Fanny? <laughs> now that's glorious. <clears throat> and he did it. I mean, a deadline like that, you remember Vietnam? It took us 15 years to get to 500,000 troops. You know, we start with 10. Well, let's send 2,000 more this month. Now we're up to 12. Let's send 2,000 more the next month. Never set out to do anything. He set out to accomplish something, whether the cause was just or not, is not my point. Because it was his cause, it was just. Right. We, don't, we don't sit in judgment on him. That's right. The point was, he was a leader from the beginning in that thing. These are the dates. This is when I'm going to do it. If, this is, if we need 500,000 men over there, we'll get 500,000 men over there. We did it in five months instead of 15 years. And then he did it. And you know, when uh, another leader in this world, a man named Gorbachev, stepped in and tried to subvert the whole thing, he invited all of his counselors, as you would, to his own living quarters and said, how can we prosecute this war as we've determined we will without appearing as warmongers? And that's when they came to the deadline. I thought it was glorious. They just stalled. Gorbachev stalled him for sticking his nose into it, and they did the job, didn't they? Right. And he, he stood by what he said and did it right. He showed some authority. We haven't seen authority and power like that. But the man I'd like to mention, and I hope, you know, our children, we need examples today. See, one disadvantage we have is we don't have men like David riding up and down our streets, or Ahasuerus sending his troops up and down our streets. But there's a man named Norman Schwarzkopf who God prepared for his office. Now, God prepared Oliver North because if you saw the pressure that man was under when he was being grilled, only a man prepared by God with special ability could have handled himself under that pressure the way he did. But God prepared Norman Schwarzkopf. You know, men don't get into these offices of authority by accident. He's 56 years old. He's 6 feet 3 inches tall. He weighs 240 pounds, he has three silver stars, and the four stars of a four-star general. He has courage that doesn't quit. When in Vietnam, he led his company on his hands and knees through a minefield, which killed three of the members of his company behind him, who veered out of his path, feeling through the sand, to get through a minefield to lead his company to safety. I mean, he's courageous. He has a 170 IQ, and he showed it. Ever watch him handle those reporters over there in Riyadh? <laughs> he's got it. He's got humor and he's got toughness. Does he care for the individual soldier? He's got a heart of compassion. And he's also tough. Right. He's tough. In August, he knew what he was going to do with that little loop 
through Saudi Arabia into Iraq behind Republican Guard. And he planned it against the opposition of a lot of other military officers because the Marines were offended they wouldn't be allowed to do anything. They wanted an amphibious assault on Kuwait. There's all these stories that you can read about and you ought to read about and your children ought to have that man set up as a man God prepared to be in a position of authority. He's a special man. He is a special man. All you have to do is listen to him talk and see what he did and read a little bit about his accomplishments. God prepares men for offices. Someone will say, but what if God doesn't? God does. That's right. You say, well, what if we get some man as president who gets us into a war and destroys half the young men of this nation? God must want half the young men of this nation destroyed. Right. Until that man requires of us something that flagrantly, obviously, manifestly, clearly contradicts Scripture, what he does is what we'll do. Right. And if it's something bad that is to the detriment of our nation, it's because God's judging this nation. God's done that over and over again. Right. Why did God raise up Rehoboam? To split the nation of Israel into two segments. Right. Ten tribes under Jeroboam and two tribes under Rehoboam. God raised up Rehoboam because he knew he was stubborn and obnoxious and he would split the nation of Israel. God raises up men like that and there's a purpose in it. I want you to remember in Scripture that God told his people they were to submit to Nebuchadnezzar and serve him just like they would any one of their kings because God put Nebuchadnezzar in that throne. Right. Nebuchadnezzar was God's man. The Bible calls him God's servant at least ten times. God's servant, Nebuchadnezzar. Brethren, the Bible tells us in the book of Deuteronomy that this book is something we ought to take heed to and we ought to teach our children. It is right. our life. It is our wisdom. It is our understanding. It is for our good. If we will learn authority and exalt it as we should, it will be to our profit as a church, as families, as marriages, as a nation, and in our business, work relationships, it will accrue to our benefit by putting these things into practice. May the Lord bless us, and I hope tonight I've helped by going back and reviewing that authority comes from God. These five spheres are not man's creation. They're God's. God prepares men for them. He may prepare men for your benefit. He may prepare men for your trials. He may prepare men for your judgment in those offices. But God prepares the men. Right. And we obey. We obey as far as they require of us until there is an obvious, obvious violation of Scripture where we have to obey God rather than men. And you don't have to sit around six hours a day looking for it. It'll be obvious. And until it's obvious, we obey. May the Lord bless the preaching of his word to all of you this evening.